Hi, this is Sandy Simpson from Apologetics Coordination Team. Thank you for choosing one of our podcasts, and I hope that you enjoy it and it's a help to you. Well, uh, today we are wrapping up our First Corinthians study with First Corinthians 16. Next week we will start with Second Corinthians. So uh, in Corinthians 16, First uh, uh, Corinthians 16, uh, the first item that he deals with is taking up collections, uh, offerings for God's people. Starting in verse 1, now about the collections for God's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. So it's clear that Paul had actually written to the Galatians before uh, he did to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians. And he had urged the Galatians to put together their offerings on the first day of the week. You know, that's another proof that the early church actually met on Sunday, not Saturday. And there are lots of proofs of that. If you run into Seventh-day Adventists, etc., cetera, uh, Jews that uh, are still living under the law. Other verses have proved that the early church had changed the day for meeting from the Sabbath to the first day of the week uh, because they didn't want people to think that they were still obligated to keep the whole law of Moses are as follows. So what we'll do is look at what transpired on the first day of the week and then look at the scriptural evidence for the assembly on the first day in the New Testament. Number one, Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week after the Sabbath. That's John 21. He was the first fruit of eternal life. And of course, we know that others were raised also in Matthew 27, 53. The resurrection is the capstone of our faith and the proving of the new covenant. So he was raised for our justification. Number two, Jesus appeared to 10 of his disciples on the first day of the week. John 20, 19. If he appeared on the seventh day, don't you think that Sabbatarians would use this to try to promote the Sabbath? You know, of course they would. Number three, Jesus waited one week and on the first day of the week appeared to the 11 disciples. In John 20, 26. Number four, the promised coming of the Holy Spirit was fulfilled on the first day of the week. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was sent. Now, Pentecost by law came on the first day of the week. That's Leviticus 23, 16. Number five, on the first day of the week, the first gospel sermon was preached by Peter, the apostle on the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's Acts 2.14. Also number six, on the first day of the week, 3,000 converts 
were united into the New Testament covenant, separating from Judaism, Acts 2.41. While at the first first Pentecost, 3,000 were slain, at this Pentecost, God reversed it. And instead, they were given eternal life. Isn't that something else? So the law kills, the new covenant gives life. Number seven, on the same first day of the week, the rite of Christian baptism into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was administered for the first time. That's Acts 2.41. Number eight, at Troas, Paul preached to the assembled Christians on the first day of the week. The only example of the Lord's Supper being practiced on Sunday. That's Acts 26 and 7. So did the churches of Galatia and Corinth. Number nine, Paul instructed the Christians at Corinth to make contributions on the first day of the week, 1 Corinthians 16.2. Why did Paul specifically give orders to the church for this to be done on the first day of the week? Well, offerings are a part of worship itself. Offerings are a part of our worship, and since offerings took place on the first day of the week, wouldn't it make sense that worship also took place on the same day of the week? This is the only day in the New Testament that Paul commands Christians to give. They would have to be gathered to do so. If Sunday was not an allowable day to worship or teach on, then none of us, uh, none of this would have occurred. So that's all very interesting stuff. And if you ever have to talk to a Seventh-day Adventist or somebody who insists on keeping the Sabbath, you might want to use those as proof of why the church, the Christian church, the Gentile church, worships the Lord on the first day of the week. Now, we also know that John had the vision of Revelation on the first day of the week when he was worshiping God in the spirit. Revelation 1.10 says, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. The Lord's Day, well, that's the first day of the week, commemorating the Lord's resurrection, and is observed as a day of divine worship, the Christian Sabbath. That's from Family New Testament Notes. Also, not on the Jewish Sabbath, which was now abolished, nor nor was that ever called the Lord's Day. And had John meant that, he would have said on the Sabbath day much less the Jewish Passover, but the first day of the week is designated. So the Ethiopic version renders it on the first day. And is so-called just as the ordinance of the supper is called the Lord's Supper, being instituted by the Lord and the Lord's table, and that because it was the day in which our Lord rose from the dead and in which he appeared at different times to his disciples and which the primitive churches set apart for his worship and uh, service, and on which they met together to hear the word and attend on ordinances. And that's from John Gill, expositor. So Paul was instituting a tradition of taking offerings in the church, but notice that these offerings were not for himself. Unfortunately, that's the disgusting thing being taught by money, money preachers on TV. They take up offerings 
but they end up enriching themselves all the while claiming it's for, quote unquote, the ministry. But we know from observation that those false teachers live like kings on money that is given for the work of the Lord. Uh-oh, that's not good. Paul was asking them to collect money to take to the council at Jerusalem so that they could in turn help with the needs of the churches. By the way, that's a good thing for churches to do. A lot of churches are very self-centered. It's like all the money they give has to go into their building program or into their coffers for whatever they want. But it's a really good practice to be giving some of that, a percentage of that away to things that don't necessarily directly benefit you. One of those, of course, is missions. Unfortunately, a lot of churches don't give the missions anymore, which is why we have fewer and fewer missionaries out there. Well, Paul was not even going to carry that money himself, but asked them to appoint trustworthy men to take the money to Jerusalem. And if they approved, then Paul would go also. Paul didn't want any of the glory for himself, but wanted the churches to be faithful to the Lord to give. It's very important that true churches, that the pastor separate himself from the money issues. This is why you want to hire a secretary or a bookkeeper or somebody like that that's in charge of the finances so the, the pastor doesn't have his hands all over it. But that's not what we see in these word of faith churches. Oh, they love it when they see money coming. The second thing he, Paul gets into is personal requests. Uh, verse 5, after I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through uh, Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you for a while or even spend the winter so that you can, can help me on my journey wherever I go. I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost, because a great door for effective work has opened for me, and there are many who oppose me. So Paul promised that he would come to them, and at which time he would minister to them, and they, they would pick men to take their offerings to Jerusalem. Paul was hoping to stay for them for a while, perhaps even over the winter. Well, well, Paul did actually stay in Corinth for three months that winter, according to Acts 20, 3, and 6. Though Paul's plans were not yet fixed, he planned to go to Judea after the winter months, and he stated that his stay with them in Corinth would be a help to him. Paul did not just want to come right, uh, come right away and leave in order to avoid the winter. He wanted to spend some time with them. There was much to correct in the Corinthian church, as we've seen already. And Paul wanted time to be able to help them also. Paul did stay on in Ephesus till Pentecost. And this proves that the first letter to the Corinthians was written in Ephesus. Then Paul was driven out by people who opposed him there, but he'd already planned to go to Corinth. He was opposed at Ephesus because adherents of Diana, the false god of the, 
uh, Ephesians, you know, had a, they had a great temple there to Diana. And the gospel that Paul preached had affected the sales of temple idols so much that those who sold those idols, such as Alexander the coppersmith, got very angry with Paul. He was cutting into their uh, profits. 2 Timothy 4.14, Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. He goes on to talk about Timothy in verse 10. If Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he's with you, for he's carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should refuse to accept him. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I'm expecting him along with the brothers. Now, Timothy was a young man at the time who was sent out by Paul many times when Paul couldn't go somewhere. Paul hoped that Timothy would be able to come before Paul came to Corinth. Some in the churches did not accept Timothy, but Paul urged them to accept him, to not let him fear them so that he would not carry on the work of the Lord. They were then to send Timothy to Paul so that he could come to him with some of the other brothers. It was, it was a tough road that Timothy had to walk. But uh, fortunately, there were those who did accept him. Verse 12, now about our brother Apollos. I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. But he was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Apollos was another type of apostle. He's not what you call a foundational apostle like Paul, but rather a sent out one, sent out one which is actually what the word apostle means, or a missionary, church planter. Apollos seems to have been a person with his own strong will, yet he was used of the Lord to preach the gospel. And uh, we can be thankful for him. He may have even been the one that wrote uh, Hebrews, although I'm more of a mind that it may have been Luke. Verse 13, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be men of courage, be strong, do everything in love. This is always the admonition from God through the Bible. Be alert and stand firm in the faith. We need to be alert today, folks. Alert to what's happening. Alert to the opportunities that we have to witness to people. I thank the Lord for people like Elizabeth who are taking advantage of that. The hospital is a really good place to be doing that, by the way. Ephesians 6.18, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the saints. We need to be alert and keep on praying for the saints. The saints are under all kinds of pressure pressure and persecution these days. I often pray for the true believers in places like Afghanistan and Ukraine. They're under a lot of pressure, folks. First Thessalonians 5, 6, so then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. 
1 Peter 5, 8, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking for someone to devour. Oh, you mean he's not chained in the abyss? That's what the uh, reform people teach. So I'm, I'm millennialism. Oh, Satan's in the abyss. No, he's not. What world do you live in, man? I don't see how you can even believe that. Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burned again by a yoke of slavery. Philippians 4.1. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, this is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. 2 Thessalonians 2.15, so then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. And finally, James 5.8, you too be patient and stand firm because the Lord is, Lord's coming is near. Well, if James thought the Lord's coming was near back when he was alive, think about how much closer his coming is now. So we also need to be strong and bold in, that, in our stand for the truth. Ephesians 6.10, finally be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. 2 Timothy 2.1, you then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 6.19 through 20, pray also for me that who, whenever I open my mouth, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly Make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. That's always a good prayer to pray for our fellow believers, and particularly those who are uh, teachers and pastors. Most importantly, we are to do everything we do for the Lord in love. Philippians 1.16 the latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Guess what? When you're defending the gospel, you are showing a great deal of love to those who are against it. Second John 1 6, and this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you've heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. First John 4 16, and so we know. And rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. Ephesians 4.15. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. That's our goal, to grow up into the Lord. The only way we can do that is speak the truth in love. We need to believe in the truth and stand in the truth and apply it with love. Going on to verse 15, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Acacia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. I urge you, brothers, to submit to such as these and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. 
I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Acacius arrived, because they have supplied what is lacking from you, for they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. You know, that's a real ministry to fellow believers, refreshing their spirit. Sometimes we tend to pick people apart. We tend to be have negative energy. <laughs> I've seen a lot of that in mission work and in church. But people need to have their spirits refreshed also. Paul urges the Christians of Corinth to submit to the elders of the household of Stephanus. We are to respect our elders in the faith and submit to them. First, First Timothy 5.17, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. Well, apparently the church at Corinth had neglected to help Paul. Paul needed help, especially because he was being persecuted in Ephesus at the time. Some of the elders from Corinth, however, went to visit Paul and gave him help. They, they not only gave him material help, but refreshed Paul's spirit. What a wonderful thing. This was their way, and they were also about refreshing the spirit of those at Corinth. And that's the reason why Paul told the Corinthian church to give them recognition, honor, and to submit to their leadership. Well, Paul finally gives his fi final greetings. Verse 19, the churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord. And so does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The Christians in Ephesus and other house churches sent their greetings to Corinth. Verse 21, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. We know that he often did that so, so they could authenticate that it was actually Paul writing the letter because they always had people, they dictated their letters to someone else. Verse 22, if anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. Come, O Lord, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. That's exactly what I say to you folks. Paul wrote the end of the letter to Corinth and dictated the rest. Paul's letters were written by an uh, amanuensis, certain persons performing a function by hand, either writing down the words of another or performing manual labor, as in Romans 16.22, as in Tertius. But he always added a salutation in his own hand as proof of genuineness. That's 2 Thessalonians 3.17. 2 Thessalonians 2.2 implies that spurious letters, false letters made to look like Paul's, were circulated. This is from Paul's uh, People's New Testament notes. <laughs> what a nasty thing to do. You know, these guys trying to get people to follow them, so they come up with fake letters. Oh, my goodness. Those who claim to love, to love the Lord but do otherwise don't love him. They're under the curse of judgment still. 
They need to repent and become true followers of Christ. False teachers, false prophets, false apostles are especially under judgment. When we're surrounded by many false teachers, we can only say, come, O Lord. I say it plenty. We can trust God will judge them. He is the one who will judge. But the grace of Jesus Christ will be with those who serve him. Paul wraps up his letter, letting them know that he loves them, even while rebuking them for a number of things that they're doing wrong. The point is that they repent of them and do right. That's what Paul wanted them to do. He wasn't just telling them off. What Paul wrote in this letter was done in love, speaking the truth in love, Ephesians 4, 15. Now, unfortunately, we know that some in Corinth did not accept what he said in this letter. And apparently they wrote a nasty letter back to him. And we'll deal with that in 2 Corinthians. But that's why he wrote 2 Corinthians was to clarify some of the things that he said and his motives. You know, often when you try to correct somebody, especially these days, people don't take correction well at all. And uh, <laughs> they think that you don't like them, that you hate them because of what you're saying. That's why we need to be very specific and tell people that if we're correcting them, that we're doing so out of love. We want them to, to prosper. We want them to be better, better off. Well, let's keep doing that and keep trying to help people because that's what we're here for, you know? Hi, this is Sandy Simpson again. Thank you for listening to one of our podcasts. You can come to my website, Apologetic Coordination Team at DeceptionInTheChurch.com or go to our YouTube site called Act TV and check out our DVDs and books, etc. Thank you so much for checking us out.